Psalm 74. I always love Psalm 73 that we just had, but Psalm 74 uh, may be titled A Suffering Church. A Suffering Church. And uh, the psalmist here turns prophet and foresees the future trials of God's people. And uh, they were here feeling rather forsaken. If you look at verse 1, it says, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? You know, sometimes we get depressed and we think that the Lord has forgotten all about us. Why hast thou cast us off forever? Why does thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? When we think of God's people, they are called the sheep of his pasture. If you have Psalm, uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, Well, sheep of his pasture. I had it earlier, but I don't know if I can find it right now. Well, anyway, there's uh, one place that speaks of the the Lord's people as the sheep of his pasture. Can't seem to find the one I want right now. But, okay. And it's talking about, uh, okay, 101 in verse 3. Yes. It's, uh, Know ye that uh, the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And then there's another one in a psalm pretty close to this. It's much the same way. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And so God considers uh, all of His people as sheep. We need to realize that uh, as He is our good shepherd. He leads us. And when we think we are forsaken, now look back in our psalm where we're teaching, and I'll go back to it. It says, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? And so God's people feel like that the good shepherd has forsaken them. And they feel like that God was angry against his own people. Well, God does not get angry against us. He does chastise us and correct us. Now then, we're going to see that the mercy of God is sought. And notice in verse 2 it says, Remember thy congregation, here the congregation, Remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance which thou hast redeemed, this, this Mount Zion wherein thou hast, uh, hast dwelt. So you have three things here. Uh, purchased, redeemed, and dwelt in this second verse. And God's congregation is His church, His people. Remember, Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then we find again that uh, the Bible teaches that we are a redeemed people. We're redeemed by Christ's blood. We're purchased, just like Israel was purchased and redeemed. And and we dwell in uh, God's presence. It says a people... uh, that's uh, people ruled by the Lord and indwelt by the Lord, because it says, Wherein thou hast dwelt. In verse 3 it says, Lift up thy feet unto perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary. They were a persecuted people. And in verse 4, Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their incense for signs. They're mocked by the enemy. They roar in the midst of the congregation. They set up their incense for signs. In verse 5 says, A man was famous according as he had lifted up axes upon thick trees, but now they break down the carved work thereof uh, at once with axes and hammers. There's great destruction that's caused by the enemy, not only physically for Israel of old, but you know, if you're reading the New Testament in the book of Acts, the Bible says that as for Saul, remember Saul of Tarsus that went about? Uh, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. He made havoc that he destroyed 
and as much as if they lifted up axes and hammers and uh, and uh, would break down all of God's work. Look at verse seven. They have cast fire into thy sanctuary. They have defiled the casting down by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. We find that the sanctuary or the temple was destroyed. And uh, by the way, this may be a prediction because uh, in the Old Testament you remember that God had the tabernacle and then he had the temple. And then Jesus, when the disciples were, the apostles were looking upon the beauty of the temple, they said, look at this beautiful temple. Gold and silver and all the, the fancy work and the expensive uh, trimmings and everything. And Jesus said that there shall be a day that there will not be one stone left upon another. That was during Christ's ministry. And in 70 A.D. it was all torn down, wasn't it? Titus, 70 A.D. under Titus, it was destroyed and the temple grounds were plowed up as a field. And so it may be a little bit prophetic here to speak of the future destruction of the temple. It says they have cast fire into the sanctuary. They have... Uh, defiled by casting down the dwelling place of, of thy name to the ground. In verse 8 it says, They said in their hearts, Let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. By the way, this is the only place in the Old Testament that you find the word synagogue. Usually the synagogues are referred to in the New Testament, in Christ's day especially. And until... Uh, they started having uh, churches built and the early churches met in various homes and places until they started building buildings for people to meet in as a, a con local congregation. But here it's called a synagogue. Remember, Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read and he read the scripture and then he sat down and he talked to people. Luke chapter 4, I believe it is. In verse, uh, <clears throat> verse 9 it says, we see not our signs, there is no more any prophet, neither is there among us any that knoweth how long. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? So the suffering church believes that uh, they would just keep on suffering, and their hope would give way to despair. I wonder if that doesn't fit many of us sometimes. We, we just give way. Remember, Paul said, we're in trouble, but we're not distressed. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. And sometimes God's people feel like that there's no hope. And the Bible tells us that we need not sorrow as others which have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. What can cause people to have no hope? We touched on it Sunday morning, Sunday night possibly in the lesson, when we were talking about those that have no hope of any future life. That would make you very sorrowful, wouldn't it? Because this life is not all, as some people say, it's not all it's cracked up to be. It does have a lot of sufferings and trials, doesn't it? And Paul says, if in this life only, now listen carefully, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. So there has to be something beyond this life to give us hope for an eternal future. And according to the Bible, the Bible says we know if our earthly house of this tabernacle, this tent of clay, were dissolved, we have a building of God, and the house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
So for the child of God, we look forward to a time that we'll be through with all aches and pains and suffering and, and heartache and trials and, and uh, the things that could uh, harm us. And if you read in Revelation 21, let me read it for you. Revelation, we'll read a verse of Scripture that will show you what it's going to be like. Revelation 21 and verse 4, it says, And God shall wipe away, listen, all tears from their eyes. That's tears of, tears of uh, pain, tears of sorrow, tears of bereavement, tears of uh, trials. Uh, tears that flow because we don't know what to do. Uh, there's so many kinds of things that cause these. And there shall be no more death. No more death. And then it says, Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Won't that be a great day? Neither shall there be any more pain. Right now, as I stand before you tonight, I have a terrible sciatic nerve in my back, and I have to take medication twice a day. And I don't often mention it, but I'm in terrible pain right this moment. It hurts bad. <laughs> but anyway, you learn to live with some things. But there will be a time there will be no more pain and no tears and no sorrow and no death. And so all the funeral... Chapels will be out of business <laughs> completely. The doctors will be out of business. It'll, it'll really change the economy, won't it? In, in heaven, it'll be a glorious thing. and We won't have to worry about a lot of things we're worrying about now. So we're thankful that there is a brighter day in the future. So hope for God's people. And sometimes we feel like that there is no hope, and that's it. And we give way to despair. That's, a, that's the saddest thing that we can do. In verse 11 it says, Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. The psalmist says, "Why, God, why are you inactive? Why Inaction on the Lord's part produces an eager plea and an earnest plea from God's people. We feel like God's not doing anything. See, that's what they felt like. Look, why withdrawest thy hand, even thy right hand? The right hand speaks of his power. Why does God not exercise His power? Is what He's saying. Uh, pluck it out of thy bosom. It's as if God has His hand here and He's not doing anything. But God, and, and God never does that way. God is always active and always helping us in all of our needs. And He hears and answers our prayers. So let's not get this downward, depressed feeling in the midst of suffering and trials. And then... The past work of their king. Let's notice beginning with verse 12 uh, through 17. We'll find what he has done for them. And what he has done for us as a church and as a people of God. It says, For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. His work is a work of salvation. For Israel it was national deliverance. He commanded deliverance for Jacob. It says in verse uh, 13, Thou... Thou, that, uh, thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Okay, first of all, he divided the, the sea. He divided the sea and let the children of Israel of old come across uh, victorious over their enemies, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And he also, it says, Thou breakest the heads of the dragons 
in the waters. Now, literally, we might say he can do that, and he has done that. But uh, in connection with this verse, it seems to me he's talking about the dragons in the sense that the enemies were still. But actually, the dragons in the waters, and thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Uh, Leviathan is actually the crocodile, or the also the whale, or large fishes are in, in indicated using these terms, the dragons in the waters. And God is all-powerful. He's able to overthrow Pharaoh and his army in the sea, and he overthrew his captains in the sea, and he's able to do all the wondrous things. Then verse 15 says, Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood, thou driest up the mighty rivers. He claved the fountains and the flood. In other words, he says he claved the rocks, and the waters flooded or gushed forth. Remember when he opened the waters from the rock? Moses was commanded. He, God said uh, the people were thirsty and they were crying out for water. And, and God told Moses, he said, uh, you stand before that rock and you smite the rock. And it will give forth water. That's a picture of Christ smitten on the cross, giving us the water of salvation and the water of life and, and the Holy Spirit of God. But then, the next time that they were thirsty, he says, you'll stand up before that rock and, and speak to the rock. You see the typical lesson? What is it? Christ could only be smitten one time, and life-giving waters would come forth. And after that one smiting, the next time the child of God is only to pray or to speak to the rock. We speak to Christ, and we get the same blessings that we got from once he was smitten for us. And the Bible says he was crucified one time, and for our sins, and he now once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews chapter 9. And now all we do is speak to the rock, Hebrews 4 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the two attitudes are given about uh, the rock in the Old Testament providing water for the children of Israel. And the next time Moses was to speak to the rock and uh, the waters gushed forth. Do you remember really what happened though? Do you remember really what happened? God told Moses to speak to the rock and Moses, the people were so had agitated Moses so much and he became angry and instead of speaking to the rock the second time he smote the rock twice and God's anger and wrath was kindled against Moses because he had disobeyed him and it was symbolical of crucifying Christ afresh or the second time and God told Moses for this one thing that you've done though he was a great leader and meek and lowly and a wonderful man Yet he let his temper get the best of him. God said, for this reason, you shall not take the children of Israel into Canaan's land. And you'll die here. And God buried him. And then he turned around and raised up Joshua to lead them into Canaan's land. God's serious about uh, obeying his voice, isn't he? Moses, we say Moses was a great man and meek. Uh, The Bible speaks that he was meek, that he was... uh, a man that followed God is a great leader and one that God had chosen and ordained to lead the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage and deliver them 
bring the ten great plagues of judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And after all of that, and brought them out and into the wilderness and just about ready to go into Canaan's land, and the people provoked him to, to do this. You know, that, that's where we get another lesson. Don't you imagine Moses' argument was this. Well, the people made me do it, or they, they did provoke me into it. You know, when you're provoked into something, who do you blame? The fellow that provoked you, don't you? And this whole people provoked him, the whole church in the wilderness. But still, Moses was responsible for his actions, not for what they did to provoke him. It's kind of like a pastor. A pastor has to keep his emotions and his feelings and his uh, everything about him under control, even though there may be some that would provoke him to do otherwise. And uh, I'm thankful I don't have that element here right now, but I've had it in the past. Every preacher that's been preaching any length of time has had people that would provoke him. And he's had, a, you know, some people that would just uh, cause all kinds of problems. So it's very great when you don't have all those things to deal with. Thank the Lord. Y'all stay right where you are now spiritually, will you? Don't give me any problems. But anyway, however I react, that's my responsibility, isn't it? What Moses did was his responsibility. You see, we're living in a day and age that no one wants to take responsibility. They want to blame someone else. Well, Moses didn't do that. In spite of all that happened, Moses took his responsibility and he faced the music. And you and I have to do that as well. If we had people in our nation that were responsible, well, then it'd be a different different thing that we deal with. But anyway, notice here, it says... Uh, in verse 15, we're going down. Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. Thou driest up the mighty rivers. Remember, he dried up the, the river, the Red Sea. The day is thine. The night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. The day and the night, all of its gods. He controls everything. He controls all the elements. He controls the day and he controls the night. He, can, uh, he controls the, look at that. Uh, thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. God does all these things. It's all under his control. Sometimes a man thinks he has a great deal to do with it, but he has absolutely nothing to do with it. And it says in verse 18, Remember this, that the, that the enemy hath reproached, O Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed thy name. Because the enemy had reproached the Lord and reproached his name. Remember, Moses called God to, to turn away from his wrath upon Israel because of one thing. He said, the enemy will say that, God, you were not able to bring your people into the land. In other words, God's honor would be at stake. You see, if something happens to you and I, it's not just because of our weakness. It's because God has declared, and by the way, it won't because He's God. Uh, God has declared that He's on our side, that He's going to take care of it. Let, let me go back and read that in the book of Exodus chapter 32. Uh, remember when God's people had turned out of the way, Moses had come down from the mountain and he'd, they'd corrupted themselves. Let's pick up with verse 7. Exodus 32, verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people which thou, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt. Now look, God says, Moses, thy people, 
which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. God didn't say they were his here. He said, Moses, they belong to you. They belong to you. Thy people, look, which thou hast broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people. Notice he didn't say I've seen my people. I've seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot. God says, Moses, I want you to... To let me alone, don't intercede at this time for them. Let my wrath wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. He says, Moses, I'm going to take care of you, but these people have sinned and corrupted themselves. They had broken the commandments, and they and Moses had come down off the mountain, and they had made uh, uh, golden calves to worship, and they were doing all kinds of uh, sensual and uh, lascivious uh, acts and things. And Moses and caught them in this situation, and God looked down upon them. In verse 11, And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, uh, said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? Moses says, No, God, they're not mine, they're yours. See that? My what an intercession. Why does thy wrath wax hot against thy people? He says, God, he reminded God that he had brought them out. Moses didn't bring them out. Moses was God's leader. He says, yes, you use me, but they're your people, thy people which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand. You delivered them with a great power and a mighty hand. You brought them out. Wherefore should the Egyptians... Here's the verse I wanted to get to. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. And then he says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Unto his people. Look, his people. See that? What a great intercession Moses made, huh? He said, God, he says, I know they're corrupt people. They've corrupted themselves. But he says, really, they're your people and your honor's at stake. And why would, the, why would we give occasion, why would you give occasion for the Egyptians to say, they brought them out, but God was not able to lead them in and God was not able to take care of his own? So God says, Moses, I'm going to do what you've asked. I'm going to I claim them as my people. And, and a lot of things transpired. And, of course, God delivered them. And we see the very great value of intercession, do we not? Okay, back in our psalm now. We're in Psalm uh, 74. And we got down to verse, uh, what verse? 19. Okay. It says, O deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. God's people are compared to, to turtle doves. You know, Jesus said, Be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. We need to be wise. Forget not the congregation of thy poor forever. 
Remember in the first verse, he said that they have forgotten. Look at verse 1. O God, why hast thou cast off all? Uh, why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Why have you cast us off? They act, act like they were forgotten. And down here it says, O deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove and the multitude of the wicked. That's verse 19. Forget, forget not the congregation of thy poor forever. It says, Have respect unto the covenant. That's exactly what Moses said. See? When the trouble came, Moses says, Don't let your people be the cause for others to say that God was not the Egyptians, to say that He was not able. And then he says, Remember, listen, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Isn't that what he told Moses? Now look, here he says, Have respect unto thy covenant. Remember the covenant you've made. For the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of of cruelty. You know, you might give us a lesson here. God, because of His promise, will take care of His own people. Have you ever seen folks say, Well, you know, I've accepted the Lord as my Savior. I've tried to live the best I could as a Christian. I've tried to live a Christian life. And then others come along and say, Well, but look at your... You, you failed here, you did this, and you did that, and something else, and the accusations start piling up. And then you begin to examine, and you say, well, they're right. You know, I'm not, I'm not very good. Pretty sinful. And uh, I'm just afraid I'm not going to make heaven. God is going to see to it if you've accepted Christ and His shed blood and re- been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He's going to see to it that you make heaven because He's going to remember His covenant. He's going to remember that if you have been redeemed, the Bible says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sin. He's going to remember that He has said that you're kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. And so you and I need to realize, above all, that in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our sins and shortcomings, God is going to remember His covenant. And we have a covenant with God. And what is that covenant? It's through the blood of Christ. The Bible says it's a new covenant. We're not under the law, the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. Covenant of grace. And the covenant of redemption by blood. And he established this new covenant. And it's so established that every person who is truly a born-again child of God by faith in Christ, the Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The Bible says that uh, you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. And you have this blood covenant relationship with God. Every person who has pled the blood of Christ for their salvation or has trusted in the redemptive blood of Christ for their salvation will be in glory, whether they like it or not. That's just God's way of doing it. You know, some people go along in this life and they say, you know, I just don't know. I just don't know if I'm going to make it. And yet, if they've really, truly been born again and trusted Jesus as their Savior, one of these days they're going to be in heaven. 
and they may stumble along in this life. Some may live a, a, a fairly consecrated life. Others may live a very dedicated life. Others may stumble along the way. But the Bible says, some through the water, and not the Bible, but we sing a song that says, some through the water, some through the flood, uh, some through the fire, but what? All through the blood. All through the blood. God leads his dear children along. And so, uh, the thing about it is, God is going to keep his covenant with us. We find in John chapter 17, I believe it's verse 24, where Jesus said, might be wrong on the verse, but it's John 17. He says, Father, I will, listen, in his great high priestly prayer, 17th of John, Jesus said, Father, I will that all those, listen, all those whom thou hast given me, this is my will, that they, all of them, be with me where I am, be with me in glory where I am, that they may behold my glory. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So, it was Christ's prayer that all of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ be with him in glory. That's his high priestly prayer. Do you think his prayer will be answered? Now, his prayer is going to be answered. Because God, he says, Father, I thank thee, in John 11, where he's talking about Lazarus, he says, Father, I thank thee that thou hearest me always. But he says, for the sake of those that stand by, I said it. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot in grave clothes. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Set him free. But uh, you, can, you can rest assured that if you are a true born-again child of God, and you have to put your faith and trust in Jesus, there, there's no exception. You must do that because the Bible says neither is there salvation in any other. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no way you can be saved without trusting Jesus. And the Bible says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The word believe means to throw yourself upon or trust trust in him, completely uh, lay hold upon him, roll yourself upon him, cling to him, with your whole soul's uh, salvation. And that's what you have to do. Someone says, well, you know, this might save you or that might save you. You say, no, none other than the blood of Christ. And I'm clinging to Him for my salvation. None other than the person of Christ. It would be just like, suppose you were out here and uh, you were shipwrecked. And there was a log or a board, a broken piece of the ship. In Paul's day, it really happened. They, some came on boards, didn't they? They grabbed the boards and found safety. But uh, so, or there was a life raft, or there was a, a life jacket, or some means of support, or something you could grab hold upon. And whatever you do, when you grab hold of of that uh, material object, maybe it's a log in the water are bored in the water. When you grab hold on that, you cling to that thing for dear life so you won't drown. That's exactly what you do to Jesus. You cling to Him for dear life. You say, this is my only security for for eternal life, my soul salvation. I'm trusting in no one else, nothing else. And when you do that, and you have all your faith and all your trust in Him, not any in your works, not any in your own goodness, not any in how good you are, 
Not any because you've done certain things in life. Not any because you helped some poor person along the way. Though that's commendable. All these things are commendable. Not any because you joined some church. You're not clinging to that. Though you should join a church. And not any just because you were baptized. Though you should be baptized if you're a child of God. But you're clinging simply and totally to Christ. That's what you've got to do. No one else. Nothing else. Not, not because you have some good works. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith. I wonder if they're talking to me. <clears throat> and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so, uh, it's by grace, isn't it? Through faith. Where were we? What verse are we on? Um, verse 20. Have respect unto thy covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. Verse 21, O let not the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise thy name. Arise, O God, plead thine own cause. Look, see, God's own cause sometimes is at stake. Plead thine own cause. Remember how, how the foolish man reproacheth thee daily. Sometimes the Lord's own cause is at stake. And the foolish man reproacheth God daily. It's a consistent thing for people to reproach God and God's children. Remember when Saul was persecuting the Christians? He was going about day and night and on a very uh, diligent journey to find everyone of that way. It was The Christians were called of that way in the, those days, in the days of the apostles. That if he found any of that way or that Christian way, that he would bring them bound, that he would persecute them, that he would deliver some to prison and even some to death. So we find that uh, God's people are reproached day by day. And in so doing, now listen, remember how the foolish man reproacheth thee. In so doing, God is reproached. Now let me give you the connection. How is it that when, when, you, when you and I as Christians are reproached, and persecuted and oppressed. How is it that the Lord is oppressed or persecuted by this? They're bringing that straight to God. Because remember when Saul was converted that same time? He saw a light from heaven. He fell upon his knees blind. Fell down to the earth on his face blind. But he saw a light brighter than the noonday sun. And he said, Lord, who art thou? He says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Well, who was... Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus, was he? But he says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. You see, the persecution fell upon Jesus, even though it was upon Christians, those that were in that way. So look at this. Remember how the foolish man reproacheth thee daily. Verse 23, Forget not the voice of thine enemies, the tumult of those that rise up against thee, Increase continually. The tumult increases continually. I want you to look at Psalm 75. It's a very short one, a brief one. And we'll try to give you this one. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. Psalm 75. First of all, it tells who we're to give thanks to, to whom we give thanks. Unto thee, O God, do we give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks. Repeat it. For that thy name is near and thy wondrous works declare. We give thanks to God, and why we should give thanks is that His name is near, 
And the evidence of the Lord's near, nearness is thy works, uh, thy wondrous works declare. Look at verse 2. When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge upright. The supreme judge will act in due time and he will be uh, the righteous judge in all things. Verse 3, the earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it, all the inhabitants of the earth. You know, the Lord sustains his people regardless of what happens. The earth and the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. Remember, it says in one of the Psalms that I will not fear, though the mountains be cast into the sea, that God is there. And so God is everywhere present, taking care of his own. If you look in verse 4 now, it says, I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly, and to the wicked lift up, lift not up the horn. There's instructions for the foolish and the wicked. Verse 5 says, lift up, not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck. Stiff-necked people are proud people. Remember, he accused uh, Israel of being stiff-necked people. Verse 6 says, for, for promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. Promotion doesn't come from any of the directions on the compass. Look at that. Promotion doesn't come from the east or the west, the south. Where does promotion come from? It comes from the Lord. God is able to bring the promotion, and the providence of God rules all, and he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And if God is promoting, uh, no one can object to it because he's going to see to it that it happens. Remember this, that the Bible says that God removeth kings and setteth up kings. So, today we have wicked kings, we have wicked rulers, we have wicked uh, men in power, places of power all around the world. And there are some that are good kings, like in the Old Testament there were good rulers and leaders. And you say, well, why does God permit the wicked ones to continue or to reign? Because he uses them for a purpose. And he's able to put them down just as quick as they rose up. Remember he said to Pharaoh, For this cause have I raised thee up, that I might show in thee my power. And he raised up Pharaoh, and it didn't mean that God made Pharaoh to be a mean man. It means that because he was such a character, that God used him to show that he could not get away with what he was doing, and he delivered the children of Israel in spite of it, and he brought him down because he was wicked, and the people down. I want you to notice verse 7 says, But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. That's just what we've been talking about. So when you consider promotion, or you consider the providence of God, it rules in all realms of life. It rules in the small uh, things of life and in the large things of life. It rules in small villages and little towns and it rules in states and governments and, and all over the world and even over the universe. And sometimes people do not realize that. God is the judge. He put us one down, down one, and set it up another. And it doesn't mean that when he puts one down that it's all because he's wicked. And when he sets up another, it's all because he's good. Sometimes he permits both the wicked and the good to rule and reign side by side at the same time. 
over an opposite juxtaposition of each other, opposite of each other, so that he can do what he wants to do in the providence of things that he has to deal with. And you know, just like we say, the, the Bible says that the, the uh, powers that be are ordained of God. And it's speaking of the uh, law enforcement, speaking of those that uh, have the charge of enforcing laws in our nation, whether they be in the federal government or on down state and city and local. And it says, the powers that be are ordained of God. And then it says, he is God's minister to execute judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that just because every uh, policeman or every uh, uh, prosecuting attorney or all the people that function in those things are Christians doesn't mean that. It means that the office is ordained of God. Now, there may be many of them that are, and we wish we had more of them. But that doesn't mean that just because God says he's ministered to execute uh, wrath upon those that do evil, that it is uh, that he's uh, chosen in the way that you might think of as being a Christian. He's not necessarily so, but his office is ordained of God. That's why our government was established upon a Christian principles from the nation on down, the beginning on down. That didn't mean that all the people that, that were there in authority even at that time were all good men and all good Christians. Maybe a whole uh, group of them were. Maybe there were many that were. And there were probably some rotten eggs in the basket too at the same time, wasn't there? And there have been through the years. But it was based upon the godly principles. Okay, let's get down to verse 8. Our time's about long. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. And the wine is red. We talk about a cup, and a cup is a, it is full, full of mixture, and he poureth out the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. Now there's a, a cup of salvation. There's a cup of wrath. There's a cup of suffering. Uh, I believe that there's one that speaks of the cup of salvation. It's over here. Uh, let's see. In chapter 116 and verse 13 says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. See, 116 and verse 13. So here it's the cup of salvation. But then there's a cup of wrath. Uh, in Revelation chapter 14, it says this in the, in the judgments that come in verse 10. It says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. So God has a cup of judgment. 